you know, this room, uh, when people are gathered together, there's all kinds of suffering. Everybody has different stories in here. Um, you know, social stuff, loneliness, uh, financial stuff, family stuff. Uh, you know, so many of us are struggling with different things in secret, um, carrying illness, physical illness, mental illness, uh, anxiety. And um, it's just, it's never, uh, it's always pertinent to talk about the topic of suffering. And so we meet Jesus uh, in His ministry as He meets two different, very different people in the midst of their suffering. So here now from Mark 5, starting in verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about Him, and He was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and who had spent all that she had, and was no better, better, but rather worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James, They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, and people were weeping and wailing. And when he said he entered, uh, and when he had entered, he said to them, "Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping." And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and he went in where the child was, and taking her by the hand, he said to her, "Talitha kumi." which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the story of you healing and working miracles, even though they're hard to believe, uh, and even though we have so many questions about them, dear God. Uh, when we enter into an exercise like considering your word, uh, we need you to teach us. We need your spirit to be here. We need you to soften our hearts. And I pray, dear God, that we would offer up our own stories of suffering and see what you have to say to them. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to start with a question. It's not, it's not that... Uh, penetrating or, uh, or, or, or clever or anything, but when it comes to the issue of suffering, when we're in a, you know, over a lunch table, when we're debating with friends in a classroom setting and a philosophical debate, 
suffering is often brought up as a reason or a cause for objecting to the existence of God. Right? Why does? Well, how can there be a good God if there's suffering in the world? But that only happens in those clinical and sterile kind of conversations because something else interesting happens. When we enter into real suffering, when catastrophe breaks, strikes, people who normally object to the existence of God become very spiritual. Several times, actually, in the past six months, I've had good friends who don't believe in God ask me to pray for them because something terrible had happened. When we're not enduring suffering, we think about suffering abstractly, and, it's, and, and it is a philosophically kind of cumbersome issue to deal with, and we conclude that maybe, maybe that's a great reason or objection to the existence, to believing in the existence of God. But when, when catastrophe strikes, President Obama opens up letters to, Corinthian, to the Corinthians from Paul and reads them in front of the nation and asks for prayers. Right when the shootings in Newtown occurred last year. Why is it we don't, we, we, we don't have a problem questioning the existence of God in sterile kind of philosophical conversations, but all of a sudden we become very spiritual in the midst of suffering. And this is the reason why. is because suffering is real. Secularism says that suffering has no meaning. If, you, if you're saying there's no God, there's just the natural world then suffering has no meaning. Your grief and your sorrow, our, our, our sadness over pain, is nothing more than our DNA being upset that it can't pass on its code. Right? I even, this past week, read a graveside funeral service, actually in this book, Keller references it, um, in which a secular atheist told the parents, your hearts shouldn't break over the death of your child. It's just death after all. Your child can't suffer anymore. And so if you're here and you're a skeptic, if you're questioning things, you're not sure where you stand, you have questions and doubts, I know that you, like everybody in this room, have seasons of struggle. And the question really for you is, is your struggle real? Is death to be lamented? Is suffering to be wept over? Is anxiety, is addiction, is relational discord, is it worthy of grief? Or is it silly for us to be sad? And that really, that, that question is hard. And, and our main point tonight is just simply this. In Jesus, we see that God's goodness is bigger than our suffering. Jesus' goodness is bigger than our suffering. And I referenced this a few weeks ago, but uh, uh, the story in the Cimmerillion of the creation of Middle Earth. And I know this is like nerd, you know, Sermon Illustration 101, but I'm going to keep running with it. Um, the creation story of Middle Earth is that the god, his name is Eru, uh, creates these children called the Anur. And I know I'm using like weird vocabulary. I'm just trying to remain true to Tolkien, but we sound like dorks here. Um, and the Anur, what Eru does is he wants to create a world. And so he has his children play in a symphony. And the symphony produces creation. So as they play, history and reality come into being. And one of his children, a guy, uh, one of the Anur named Melkor, decides that he wants his own world and control over his own world, so he starts playing a different song, an attempt to be discordant with the symphony that Eru um, is conducting. He rebels against the melody. But I didn't tell you all what happens next in the story, and it's really it's beautiful imagery. So Melkor rebels and he plays discordantly, but every time he does that, 
he found that Eru had actually even woven his discord back into the symphony. And so it was real evil and it was real rebellion. And the goodness of Eru was so overwhelmingly good that it even wove the rebellion back into the symphony and continued to make a beautiful sound. And in some ways, that, maybe that's the biggest, kind of clearest picture of just that simple concept that the, the world is not good versus evil in this equal battle. God is good. Jesus is good. And His goodness far overwhelms evil. And it is so good that it will weave evil back into good. Is sin and suffering and death real? Absolutely. Is it a threat to God's goodness? Absolutely not. His goodness is so good that it will overcome sin and evil. Jesus is bigger than our suffering. doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean there's easy steps. Um, but Jesus' goodness is bigger than our suffering. And so what I want to do tonight is walk through the story and just kind of retell it. And as we retell it, pick up the lessons that were in it. So I kind of have four lessons and two challenges at the end. It's a little bit different than you know, a three-point sermon or something like that. So we'll just walk through the story. First, we meet Jairus which on the way over here we decided to sound like a rapper's name. But um, I don't think rap had been invented yet, but who knows. So Jay Roos um, is a synagogue leader. First thing we learn about him. And if you remember earlier in Mark, Jesus has already encountered the leaders of the uh, synagogue, and they're his primary opponents. So much so that several of them are actually plotting his death at this point. So here's this guy, member of the scribes and the Pharisees, who opposed Jesus, Jairus is just as opposed to Christianity as anybody else, then or today. Opponent of Jesus. But he's got a story, and his story is this, his daughter's dying. And now, in light of that story, he finds himself on, his, on the ground at the feet of a wandering teacher. How does somebody go, a distinguished man, a leader, a member of the opposition party not believing in Jesus, to on the ground in front of Jesus. Suffering brings him there. Right? Desperation brought him there. And I know that y'all don't have children yet, and I pray that, I hope all of y'all get to have children because it's amazing, Um, but it's also terrifying because, you know, up until I had children, I wondered, could I endure, and, you know, my own suffering and my own death, And once you have children, you realize there's another suffering and death that's much more grievous to you, and it's the possibility of your children suffering and your children's death. It's much more ominous, it's much more daunting than even contemplating your own. And so here's Jairus, right, at the feet of Jesus. And he explains, my child is dying, and verse 24 tells us Jesus went with him. And so the first lesson is this, just in these opening verses. Lesson number one. Faith probably feels a lot less like articulating good theological exposition of the cross and a whole lot more like just feeling desperate. Faith probably feels a lot less like having a really good theological exposition of the cross, the atoning work of Jesus. Your faith is absolutely in those things, but it probably feels less like being theologically accurate and more like just being desperate. Simply, wanting Jesus is a good thing. It's a good thing. We're not diminishing that. Desperately needing Jesus is probably a place of much healthier faith. Um, Faith feels like desperation more than it feels like theological thinking. 
Faith is more like crying out than it is like thinking hard. So that's the first lesson that we learn from Jairus. Here's a man acting in faith. Right? Not thinking a whole lot theologically, just wanting, actually not wanting, needing Jesus to be who He is. So he makes his way towards Jairus' house, and the people were crowded around Jesus, and we meet the second sufferer. It's a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. It is referring to what you think it's referring to. Again, this is not weeks, and this is not months, and this is not a couple of years. She's been bleeding for over a decade. I don't think any of us can imagine kind of how crippling that would be for her physically, socially. We're told that she actually has spent all her money on her care, and the care has actually made her a worse, uh, put her in a worse condition. She suffered at the hands of other doctors. Uh, she had sought other treatments, and the treatments didn't work, made things more painful, and left her broke. And in some ways, it feels like she's acting, acting superstitiously, and maybe she really kind of is. That she just thinks, if I can just touch this cloak, right? It sounds superstitious. Then this guy can help. So on one hand, you have Jairus, leader, man of distinction, wealthy, has servants, his daughter's dying. And then on the other hand, you have a woman who's poor, who's an outcast, who has nothing left, who's in, been in deep pain for over a decade. And Jesus stops for her. And this tells us our second lesson about Jesus, that His attention and cares for anyone. When you look at these two people, a distinguished man and an embarrassingly sick woman, it's embarrassing for her to be sick the way she's been sick. And He ignores the important person... And Jesus, unlike us, gives dignity to just anybody who comes across His path. Regardless of their moral condition, regardless of their station in life. His love and His care is for anybody who would have it. And so you may think that you're not deserving of Jesus. And, and so many times we think, the way we look at people and the way we look at relationships when we walk into a social setting is we look... Where are the profitable interactions for me? How do I stand to benefit? Right? The times when, you, when you're, you're awkwardly jumping from relationship to relationship or conversation to conversation and you want to get to another one. Right? You're looking over shoulders to see if there's somebody better to talk to. Jesus doesn't operate that way. The only thing that ever garners His attention that makes us worthy of His attention is simply needing Him. He doesn't care who you are or where you're from or what your history is. And He's not impressed. And that's actually good news. That's lesson two. Jesus cares for anybody. He, he blows off the rich guy with his daughter dying for the poor outcasts. People are crowded. Great chance to touch him. And she does. And she knows. And the text tells us she's immediately healed. And we can't imagine what this moment's like. What it would be like to have a condition for 12 years that's crippling and instantly be healed. I'm sure it took her breath away. I'm sure, there's, there's no way she couldn't have immediately started weeping. 12 years and immediately, and Jesus knew it happened. Right? He turns around, who touched my garment? And the disciples make note of the crowd and they said, who didn't touch your garment? Why, how can you even ask a question like this? There's people everywhere. And the woman is the only person that actually knows what's going on when Jesus asked this question. Now, that begs the question, why would Jesus single her out this way? Right? Her action was in secret. She touched him when everybody else was so that it wouldn't get noticed. And only she and Jesus knew what had gone on. And she got what she wanted from Jesus. 
But the reason that Jesus did this and singled her out and called her out and asked to do business with her is because even though she got what she wanted, she hadn't gotten everything she needs. Jesus actually still had more to offer her. Jesus has more than just healing. Jesus is he's about more things than just alleviating a, per, a particular set of circumstances in your life. And He wants more for her than simply healing for her physical condition. He calls her forward so she can give, He can give her more. He calls her to Himself. He calls her to do business with Him, not simply get things from Him. And she tells her whole story. And Jesus responds, and this is what He has to offer her, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. When he says daughter, he's saying you're more than healed. You're brought into the family of God. You're under the care of the Heavenly Father. You are His and He is yours. When it says the word, it says your faith has made you well, that verb is actually sozo. It's the same Greek word for saved. Your faith has saved you. He's teaching her that she was kind of Her superstition really kind of was superstition. It literally was kind of silly. Maybe His garment can heal me. And He's saying, no, no, no. God the Father's healed you. And He's done more than heals you. Your faith has brought you into His family. Jesus is calling her to Himself. He wants her to know His love for her. And that's the third lesson. We're right. You're right to bring your suffering to Jesus. And we should. To bring broken friendships and families uncontrollable anxieties, destructive behaviors, illness, the stories of abuse, the stories of neglect, whatever it is. And He weeps over and He really cares about your suffering and the suffering of His people. But, when you invite Jesus to come into your suffering, He's going to speak to it. But He's also going to jack around with every other part of your life. And we have firewalls built in. We want to have firewalls, right, that protect Jesus against other parts of our lives. Maybe that's you tonight. You like some of the good things you hear from Scripture about in the words from Jesus, but you don't want Him to come and jack with certain aspects of your life. You want Him to fix some things, but you want to keep Him out some of these areas that you have control over and you have desires and you have things that you don't want Him to press on. But if you come to Jesus, He's going to jack things around because He offers you more, because He offers you Himself He offers you His care. He offers you His love. And He offers you His family. So bring your suffering. But know that Jesus is going to pry into your life and do more work than you anticipated. And you'll be better for it. A lot of times I think the way that we come into religious settings is we want some therapeutic healing in a certain area of life. But I think one of the reasons that we hold off, especially things like fellowship, whether it's in the church or in RUF or wherever it is, but hold off being known by others, is because we know if we start to get known, Jesus is going to start to jack with us. And He will. And you should know that. Bring your suffering to Him, but be prepared. He's probably going to mess in all the rest of your life. And it will be good on the other end. So back to the story. Third lesson bring him your suffering but he's going to deal a whole lot more with a whole lot more things in your life than just your suffering back to your story back to the story at this point verse 35 servants from Jairus house come and they deliver the bad news his daughter has died you, I can't imagine what Jairus is going through at this point the urgency he's feeling all along as Jesus stops because Jairus knows his daughter is on the deathbed 
And he's just thinking, come on, come on, come on. You, you felt that anxiety. I feel it with my children. Every time we try to go anywhere, uh, we cannot get out the front door for anything, right? But that's Jairus, and his urgency is much more serious. And Jesus stops and he says, how does he respond? He says, don't fear, keep believing. If you sit in that imperative for a moment, a father who knows his daughter is dying, who now knows his daughter is dead, and someone says, don't fear, but keep believing. Continue in belief. That's just one of the hardest things God says in Scripture. Don't fear, keep believing. Take that and apply that to all the places of anxiety. You're like, don't fear, keep believing. That's the hardest thing God's asks of us. Any of the other commands we struggle to keep, think about that one. Don't fear, keep believing. Fear and unbelief are our default once things kind of get beyond our control. They're really actually our default before things get out of control because the fear that I will not be okay and I can't believe Jesus can really resolve this. You know, and, and I've talked about this before. Workaholism is a key symptom of the fearful heart that doesn't believe. It's us trying to get control of a life that we can't control. And Jesus says, don't fear, keep believing. And Jesus is actually doing the same thing for Jairus that he did for the woman. He's establishing who he is and what he's come to do. He's not merely fixing felt needs and then moving on. He's staring into Jairus' eyes and he's saying, trust me. Trust me. Jesus is not just meeting a need. He's actually nurturing the relationship between him and Jairus. And this is the fourth lesson. God's timing will rarely be our timing, and that's a good thing, even if we can't understand it. God's timing will rarely be our timing, and that's a good thing, even if we can't understand it. You have two people here. Jairus, his life is good, and his 12-year-old daughter, you notice at the end, she was 12 years old, verse 42. Suffering comes too quickly for him. 12 years is the mark of suffering coming too soon. Right? His 12-year-old girl. The woman, she's an outcast and she's poor. She's been bleeding for 12 years. And 12 years actually represents suffering that's gone on too long. Neither one of them liked the timing of Jesus. She suffered far, far too long. He's suffering far, far too soon. And I'm not saying that I understand God's timing. And, and we, it's probably dangerous for us to always try to explain God's timing. It's certainly a mystery. But I know this much... That if we make God working on our timetable, the condition by which we will trust Him, God, if you work on my timetable, I can trust you. And, and then if God doesn't work on your timetable, that's cause for unbelief. Um, God working on our timetable, it, it can't be a deciding factor. It's, it's on whether or not we're going to trust God. Right? It would be as if Mary Walton actually told me, Dad... If you don't do something when and where I want it, I no longer accept you as father. It's not cause for unbelief, simply because God doesn't cohere or adhere to your agenda, agenda all the time. Now, that doesn't mean it's not an excuse for exploring and seeking to understand the mysteries of God. You should do that. That's good. But if He is God, you should always expect to find places where He's beyond our understanding. And timing is often one of those places. And it very well may be true that He doesn't serve our immediate anxiety for the express purpose 
of calming us and confirming His sovereignty. Let me say that again. It's actually probably often true that He doesn't serve our immediate anxiety for the express purpose of calming our hearts and confirming in our hearts His sovereignty. Would it be a good thing for your relationship with God if He jumped at every request? It would be horrible for us. It's one of the key markers of terrible parenting. Right? Sometimes I actually ask my girls, that we'd, more so than when they were little, to do hard things that they didn't want to do for the sake of nourishing trust between us. The first example was when they were very, very little and just barely stand. I'd stand away from the bed and ask them to jump off the bed into my arms. And there would be fear and there would be trembling. And of course, I enjoyed it probably too much. But a little bit of what was going on is this. I wanted them to see that I would catch them. And so I'd ask them to endure something hard. And it wasn't about the event at all. It was about them training in them. My dad catches me. My dad catches me. My dad catches me. God, one of the things He does in trials, not all trials are about this. There's certainly there's more to them. But one of the things He's doing is He's saying... I want you to go through something hard so that you can see on the other side I'm still sovereign. I'm not going to adhere to your timing. It's not good for you. It's actually better for our relationship, your relationship with God, for you to wait on His timing. We're not always going to like God's timing, but it will be good for us. And it will grow confidence in our hearts that He's going to catch us. And that's what Jesus is sometimes doing in our trials. He's saying, wait and trust me. And it will be good for your soul if you wait and you trust me. His timing is not ours, but it's not ours for our benefit. Back to the story. Jesus then offers these words where you're like, Jesus, is this biblical sarcasm? I don't know. What's all the commotion? Like he doesn't know. She's not dead, but sleeping. Now, in the New Testament, Paul and other writers, you need to know this, they often refer to death, that when Jesus comes around, they refer to death as sleep. Jesus is not objecting to their medical diagnosis. He's saying something about who He is and what He's come to do. There's several other places in the New Testament where death is called sleep. That when Jesus gets close to death, death suddenly is kind of less secure and not quite as sure as it once was. So He goes into the child's bedroom... And he touches her. There's another touch. And there are words again. Jesus' native language is actually Aramaic. So this kind of... You can imagine Peter's telling the story to Mark and Peter just remembers these words so penetratingly and he just said, you've got to put the Aramaic in there because I'll never forget the time. Jesus said, Talitha kumi. And it says, little girl arise and she gets up and she's been alive for 12 years as long as the older woman's been suffering. And we've got to remember what's happening. Jesus has come and touched this dead girl and brought her life. He came and touched this sick woman and restored her. And we've got to remember how the story hits the first listeners. Mark didn't write this book for y'all. He wrote it for first century listeners. And we're not going to go terribly into it. I did it last quarter. You should go look at the podcast in Leviticus. But you'll remember that bleeding actually makes people unfit for temple worship. Could not go into God's temple if you were bleeding. And it took purification rituals over time for you to go back into worship. And so the shortest way to summarize what's going on is God wanted His people to know that in His presence, 
His intention was that our bodies were perfect. That's what those kind of prohibitions were about. about. He was saying like, when I'm around, everything's supposed to be right and I can't tolerate broken bodies. Don't you know they weren't supposed to be this way? And so the woman was cut off from worship. She'd been cut off from worship for 12 years. Touching her, according to Leviticus, actually makes someone else unclean. Her uncleanness passes to someone else. So when Jesus touches her, He becomes ritually unclean. Likewise, in Leviticus, touching a cadaver makes you ritually unclean and cut off from worship from God. But something's different right here. Something different is happening. He's actually making them clean and He's passing life back onto them as their uncleanness and death passes into them. And this is actually the big lesson of the text. This is the fifth lesson. Jesus is teaching how the suffering of the world is going to be dealt with. It's a sign. His miracles are a sign. They're flyers. They're illustrations of His greater work. He's constantly doing miracles to see, I want you to see what I'm about, but, what it, but the greatest work I'm about is a far bigger expression of these. So He feeds people because the new heavens and the new earth is going to involve a huge party with a ton of food. That's why He feeds people. It's actually why we take communion every Sunday. It's just a reminder. There's going to be a feast and God doesn't like hunger. He heals people because He hates broken bodies. He brings people back to life because He hates death. His miracles are advertisements of His greater work. When the woman touched Jesus, His power went to her and her uncleanness went to Him. When He took the girl's hand, His life went into her and the uncleanness of death went to Him. It was in Him becoming unclean that the woman becomes clean. And it's in Him taking the child's death that the child rises. This is what theologians call the great exchange. This is the cross. That's what Jesus is teaching them right there. That the cross is the place of suffering. It's the place where Jesus' suffering takes away our sin and takes away the brokenness of the world. That it's the place where sin and death converge on one person and He takes it on Himself and He carries it away. That's where suffering is eliminated. For life to flourish, for you to flourish... Death has to be taken away. That's what this passage is all about. I'll close with two kind of challenges, maybe, or applications. The first one is for Christians. If you're here and and this is something you're in, but it applies to anybody. You got to start dreaming bigger. Your dreams are too small. What you want from God is far too small. What I want from God is far too small. I want God to make me a CrossFit superstar. I want God to make my children love watching Alabama football with me. Right? I want God to make things financially easier. I want God to make Obamacare or somebody's health care reform work. But that's, that's a bigger dream. But it's not, still not big enough. Right? That's a pipe dream. But we think about our immediate set of circumstances. That's what we bring to God in prayer all the time. And you should. And Jesus does not denigrate that. And He grieves over the sorrow of them. And Jesus can speak into those situations. But His big thing, this is what you will hear in RUF over and over again, His big thing is taking away sin and death. That's His big job. That's the main thing He's really into and that He's offering for His people. Those are the main enemies that break our lives. Guess what? Midterms are not the big enemy. Yeah, they're stressful, and you can pray about them. I'm not saying you can't. 
But those are not the enemies. And I, I suspect that a lot of us don't see or hope that this is Jesus' main work in our life. We start to think that His main work is to tell us what to major in or where to move or what nonprofit to start because we actually think our main problem is uncertainty in life decisions. Okay, those are problems just for rich people, and I'm couching all of us in that because anybody that lives in America and has a college education is rich. Those are rich people problems. Those are actually privileges that we've failed to be grateful for, and so we whine about the fact that we're indecisive. That's not Jesus' main work. In fact, he's very, He has very little concern for those sorts of things. And if you talk to needy people, they don't care about those things at all. Jesus' main work is taking away sin and death, and that is much better news than the fact that He doesn't make decisions for you about mundane things. He says to his friend Martha in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he will live. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the firstborn from the dead, the one whom death couldn't hold down. He burst the bonds of death. And those in him, the way Paul says it in Philippians 3, those in him, here's, here's the Britain translation of Philippians 3. This is what Paul says, Screw my accomplishments in this life. I want to be found in Jesus by faith so that I can be with Him in the resurrection. That's the summary of Philippians 3. You don't have to memorize the whole chapter. You have it now. Okay? Paul just goes through how impressive he is and his accomplishments are. And he says, screw all that. I want to be in Jesus so I can be with Him in the resurrection. The world made new again. Our bodies unbroken by infirmity. Our hearts unstained by sin and jealousy and self-absorption. The place in Scripture I've read more and more, the older I get, which is not too old, but it's a little bit older than it was last week. I turned 35 on Sunday. The place I go to more than anywhere else is Revelation 21. I think everybody should read it every day. And this is John's vision. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. What that means is, is not a different heaven and a different earth, but this one made right again. The word new means this world renewed. The first heaven and earth passed away, the seed was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. This is not a city coming out of God, out of heaven. This is the people of God. When it says new Jerusalem and Zion and calls it a bride, he's actually talking about the church. The church is coming back, all those who've gone to be with God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be as their God. Here's the good news. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Those former things are gone. That's what Jesus is in the business of doing. When you come to Jesus... You can pray about your midterms. Don't hear that I'm not saying that. But if you feel like I'm belittling you a little bit about praying for midterms, I am. So, or obsessing over midterms. Right? But if, you, if the main thing you bring to Jesus is the anxiety in your midterm season, and the main thing you bring to Jesus is asking Him to tell you who you should room with, this is what it's like. You're walking up to a feast prepared for you and you're asking for a ketchup packet. Jesus is like, here, you just want a ketchup packet? You, you got to dream bigger. What are the fat? What are we panicked about culturally right now? Healthcare. What's huge? Organic food and CrossFit. Figuring out health insurance. Pharmaceutical companies. You know why? 
Because we're dying for the resurrection. We're pouring all our money into the hope of a resurrection, hoping that right Stanford researchers or whoever it is, all the smart people can figure out how to keep us from going to death. Yeah, whether you're a Christian or not, you can't deny everybody is dying for resurrection. And we are orienting all of our economic resources toward that. We are longing for it. So here's, here's my application for Christians. Stop freaking out about ketchup packets. And rejoice and anticipate the Lamb's Feast, the resurrection. Life is going to have difficulty, and it will be hard. But Paul in prison even calls being in prison a light momentary affliction. And suffering might last for a while. It might come too soon, and it might last too long. But Jesus' short-term fix in these people's lives, He knows it's a short-term fix. They were advertisements of the resurrection. They were small pictures of His greater work. I know there's some dark trials in this life. Even in Paul in Philippians, he, I mean, he writes a lot of his letters from prison. And he says, I'm not sure I can endure this anymore. I kind of want to go and be with Jesus. But while I'm here, I'm going to stay here and labor for the goodness of the saints in the church and for the gospel. Paul wants to move on. So here, Christian, you got to get better. You, you, this is one of the few times I'm saying, you got to do something. You need to get better about getting excited about what Jesus is doing. About the fact that Jesus is dealing with the big things. And when you really get excited about the fact that Jesus is dealing with the big things, that you have resurrection life in Jesus, here's what happens. You don't fret the small things nearly as much. The things that you thought were your big sources of panic are no longer sources of panic because you have resurrection life with Jesus. See, He actually deals with the small things by giving you a longer perspective on the important things. The key, probably to dealing with midterms, is probably thinking about the resurrection. You'll probably actually even make better grades because your soul will be rested and you'll sleep better. And things biologically probably will work better. Right? I'm, don't, I'm not making any promises here. <laughs> but I think probably somebody might back me on that. I'll close with this. If you're here and you're not sure what you believe. Here's the question, here's the challenge for you. How would you intend to deal with suffering? Whether it comes too soon or it goes on too long. And this is really, I I offer this to you. Will you grant yourself the dignity of saying that your suffering is real? I really think you should. I think your suffering is real. I'm sad for you. I don't want suffering in your life. I challenge you to grant to yourself dignity. That your suffering is real. And if there is no God, your suffering has no meaning and your sadness is not justified. That means it's simply our DNA being upset that the odds of passing on its code are threatened. God actually gives dignity to our sadness. He comes into our sadness. He's doing something about our sadness. Will you consider reaching out to Jesus and give dignity to your sadness? Let's pray.